message of judgment is the beginning of the gospel because if you're honest with yourself you realize that you don't have it all together and you never have you've made a million mistakes and so have I and so many parts of our culture says oh don't look at that oh it's your parents fault like we're gonna either blame shift or we're gonna ignore it right is that what they tell us it's not you your parents did it to you Culture tells you to shift the blame for your problems. They tell you to point to social injustice or poor upbringing or whatever takes the focus off of yourself. This isn't God's opinion, though, and Pastor Daniel will point out today that it isn't the truth at all. You and every other person on the planet, no matter who they are, must take the blame for your own sins. Everyone is sinful and everyone is in need of a Savior each and every day. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Jonah chapter 3 as he continues his message, God's plan all along. In verse 1, starting from the beginning again, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now, This first verse is a complete parallel with Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is getting a second chance. The first time God said to go, Jonah didn't go. And God gives him the exact same command. Now, I know that there's some of you and you've heard well-meaning Bible teachers who will say, oh, yeah, when the fish vomited Jonah out on the land, he vomited him on the shores of Nineveh. And sure enough, when Jonah went into the city, he looked really weird because all the stomach acids had already begun to digest in Jonah. And that made the message more important. Now, I'm here to tell you, that's really fun, artistic imagery But the Bible actually doesn't say that. It could have been months. It doesn't say that. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a fun picture. And we all like hearing messages from weird-looking people. At least I hope you guys do. But realistically, it doesn't give us all that. And so it's a nice embellishment. And we like that kind of stuff. I'll be honest. I I take a lot of liberties with some things because it makes a nice story. But it doesn't actually say that. At some juncture... The word comes to Jonah again. It's a second time. And Jonah's got a second chance. He's got a new beginning. And I wanted to, before we really get into this, to bring that out because I believe for many of us right now, God has given you a second chance. You've made mistakes. God has asked you to do things and you've abandoned your post. You've bailed out like Jonah. You went in the exact opposite direction. But God has given you a second chance. And what I like about Jonah is even though he ran the first time, notice what happens this time. Then it says, so Jonah, verse 3, arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Better late than never, right? Listen, if you're here today and what was just said, if God's spirit plucked your heart, convicted your heart, listen, better late than never. If you've been running from God's call, from God's plan, if God calls again, then step on out. Jonah He learned from his experience. 
And God's given him another shot. And Jonah steps up and goes. And it says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in extent. So the idea was is that Nineveh was not a small city. It would have taken Jonah three days to get around in the city. And according to historical accounts from this time period, the city of Nineveh was about 120,000 inhabitants. Now, in Jonah's day in Israel, the largest city was Samaria. It wasn't Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had had about 30,000 inhabitants. So Nineveh was four times as large as the largest city that Jonah had ever seen. It was before the day and age of planes, trains, and automobiles. Before you can just go somewhere and check it out. There was a good chance that Jonah the prophet had never been outside of the borders of the nation of Israel. So he goes there, and this city is massive. And we find our first point in verse 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this begins with the message of judgment. The message of judgment. The gospel message, the good news, begins with the message of judgment. God wanted Jonah to tell the Ninevites that it was time for them to reap what they had sown. Their wickedness had come before God, and now God is like, now it's time for you to pay for what you've done. It's the message of judgment. Now, by the time this chapter's over, you're going to see why Jonah didn't want to go. And really, next week in chapter 4, as we close out the series, we're going to see more of Jonah's reaction to what goes on. But the gospel begins with a message of judgment. Now, I say that, and I realize that for all of us, we struggle with the fact that God delivers a message of judgment. Right? Most people who don't believe in Jesus, they'll say, why would I want to believe in a God who would condemn people to hell? I mean, this is exactly why I don't believe in God, because God is going to judge the Ninevites. I mean, who would want to follow that kind of a God? I'm sure there's many of you in this room right now watching online. That's you. You're like, this is why I'm not a Christian. This is why I think it's all nuts. Why would I want to believe in a God who has a message of judgment? I want to unpack that for you because I'll be honest, I'm the same way. And I think for most of us, even those of you here who love Jesus with your whole heart, soul, strength, mind, you struggle with the fact that God is a God of judgment. There's a part of you in your compassion, in your love for people, I just don't get why it's that way. I'm going to explain it to you. And I think the reason we struggle with the concept is because we make it a philosophical thing that we think about in the abstract, that we don't make it personal. So I'm going to use a very personal and provocative example. Okay, imagine there is a man, and this man is a serial kidnapper, child molester, and murderer. Okay? So if you don't have kids, you can realize that that's really bad because you were a kid at some point. There's a person who kidnaps violates and then murders children and does it all over the place. Now imagine that man gets caught, right? He gets caught for it and he confesses it with joy. Oh yeah, you don't even know the half of what I've done. 
And he goes through the whole thing, right? And of course, there's the news coverage and everyone's like, oh yeah, I mean, it's horrible. This man might be the worst guy who ever lived. And man, thank God he got caught. And he goes before the judge and the judge is like, look, I'm a loving judge. Go free. Does anybody think that that's okay? I say that and I, I can feel the tension. Like everyone's like, like that judge, that is wrong. That is unloving. It is unjust. Because what this man did deserves, at the very least, life in prison and probably a lot more. See, all of us, when we put it into real personal terms, where the rubber meets the road, street level for us, we all realize that true love demands judgment. Could you imagine if your spouse comes home and says, hey, listen, I've been, I've been sleeping around, I've been going out on you, and they're like, yeah, no worries, man, have fun. You don't love the person if you respond that way. See, when you make it personal, you realize that you couldn't worship a God who doesn't call right things right and wrong things wrong. You couldn't worship a God who could just let somebody who has been brutal go free. Deep down in the pit of who you are, you think to yourself, that ain't right. That ain't right. So to take it from there to our understanding of God, why would we think it's not right for the judge of all the world to judge justly? See, if God does not bring a message of judgment against wrong, then he's not loving. He's not just. He's not perfect. And he is unworthy of worship. But you know another reason why I think we struggle with it? Because by and large, we live in a just culture. Now, don't get me wrong. I realize that there's all sorts of issues and injustices in 21st century America. All sorts of them. But by and large, because of the way our government is structured and the checks and balances and all that, by and large, our country is, at least in its structure, has justice baked into it. And so, because you and I, most of you don't feel grossly put off by people or marginalized, we don't value the God who brings things to rights. But if you look at where the church is growing the most in the world right now, it's in China and India, two of the highest populated areas in the globe. And in both of those cases, they were both subject to extreme injustices. Within China, because of the communist regime, and in India, because of the caste system. And for the people who are on the margins of the regime, they hear a God of judgment who will declare right things right and wrong things wrong, and they love it because they've experienced gross injustice. So part of the reason 21st century Westerners struggle with the God of judgment is by and large, our culture is not given to extreme forms of injustice, although I realize there is still a lot of injustice. So we don't see the need for a God who will declare things and bring things to right. But either way, you need to realize, and I need to realize, that the message of judgment is the beginning of the gospel. It's the beginning of the good news. It's the simple truth. The Apostle Paul said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what all means in the Bible? All, you guys are so deep. 
All have sinned. That means all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all stand under judgment. Listen to Jesus, gentle, loving, dying on a cross and rising again for us, Jesus. In John chapter 3, most of us remember John 3.16, or you've seen the sign at a football game. But listen to what John 3.17 and following says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his evil deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen and that they have been done in God. Now, think about what Jesus just said. He said, look, I did not come to condemn the world. You hear what Jesus said? Most of us think Jesus came, he's declaring judgment. No, no, he says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came that through me the world might be saved. And then he says why the world is condemned. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his evil deeds should be exposed. See, what Jesus is saying is that the message of the gospel is that all of us are condemned already because we have evil in our hearts. And the reason we do not come into the light is because you know when you come into the light, what is in your heart gets exposed. I've used this example before, but it's so good here. It's like those mirrors that our wives have that have the high magnification component. You know those mirrors? The ones that have the little special perfect light that shows everything? It's not a normal mirror. It's a high-intensity mirror. Sure enough, I came home last night after talking about this, and the light of that mirror was on. Now, I'm here to tell you, that mirror is a horror show. Because in the amplification of the pores on your face and my face, it's horrifying. It's cruel and unusual. I mean, it's one thing to look the way that you look, but then to amplify that, you, I realized that I got hair coming out of places I didn't even know hair could grow. And then there's pores, there are big pores, and there's pores that look like they're stuffed with stuff. And I'm the kind of guy sometimes, because I know that thing is there, I'll walk by, I won't look at it, and I'll just throw a shirt over it, you know? Why? Because I don't want to see that business. It's like almost like I walk in when the light's on to that thing, and I'm tempted to look at it. I can hear, like, the horror music. And all of a sudden, I look in, and it's like, and the bats fly away, and it's terrifying. Why don't I like that mirror? Because in it, all of my imperfections on this face, which has enough trouble already, is amplified. And that's exactly the way we all are. 
See, the problem is, is that you, all of us have stuff in our heart that's just evil. And because the stuff in our heart is already evil, we are already condemned. So this message of judgment is the beginning of the gospel because if you're honest with yourself, you realize that you don't have it all together and you never have. You've made a million mistakes and so have I. And so many parts of our culture says, oh, don't look at that. Oh, it's your parents' fault. Like we're going to either blame shift or we're going to ignore it. Right? Is that what they tell us? It's not you. Your parents did it to you. And every time you see your parents at the holidays, you're like, yeah, mm mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm in therapy. Still. I wouldn't be this way if you weren't the way you were. Right? And it's because your high school softball coach wouldn't let you start because they favored somebody else over you. Or, 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 or. We have a million reasons why we're this way. And we never want to say, you know what? I'm this way because I'm this way. I have just as much of a responsibility as everything that was done for me and to me. So we have a culture that doesn't look in. Why? Because looking in is just too darn terrifying. We're already condemned. That's where the gospel begins. But it doesn't stay there. Because look at what happens. Jonah comes in. He proclaims judgment, this message of judgment. And look at what the people do. Picking up in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king, verse 6 of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and of his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and turn from his violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? So now the message of judgment gives way to the movement of repentance. The movement of repentance. I call it a movement of repentance because Jonah comes on in, he proclaims this message of judgment, and all of a sudden, people begin to respond. People who heard Jonah directly, people who heard from friends, who heard from friends, people who put it on the Facebook of Nineveh, or however the word got out, all of a sudden, everybody just started to repent. They started to change directions. They took off their clothes and they put on sackcloth. They sat in ashes. They proclaimed a fast. And by the, the people were doing it, and then all of a sudden, the king gets on board. He hears it, and he's like, oh, no, we're in trouble. So it's a movement. It's not just one person. The whole city is moved to repentance. Now, repentance is a church word. It's a biblical word. It's an important word. But it's a word that people don't like so much today. I remember when I first started reading the Bible, the only time before I had ever read the Bible that I heard the word repentance was there was this guy who used to stand on a crate outside of Grand Central Station in New York City, and he would scream and yell. His eyes were mean. He drooled all over his big beard, screaming, repent, you're going to hell. And I used to think to myself, as long as I'm not like you, I'm probably doing all right. 
And so repentance, that word, it's taken on this negative meaning. But you have to realize that repentance is a beautiful word that literally means the restoring of a relationship. It means when somebody strays on a relationship and they come home, they have repented. It's the bringing back together of what has been separated. And I'm so bummed by that guy who's so angry out, and they're not, he's not in front of Grand Central Station anymore. They clean that stuff up real quick. But it's like, it gives the total wrong idea. And these verses here explain to us biblical repentance maybe more clearly than in any other place in your Bible. Because notice the steps. First, biblical repentance begins with believing God. Notice what it says, verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. It begins with a belief in God. Then you respond by doing something different. So it begins with belief, and then it responds in actions. Notice first, they fast, they put on sackcloth, they sat in ash. I'm going to explain all that in a second. And then the king even says, stop doing all the evil things that you're doing. So there is a belief in God which gives way to a corresponding action which culminates in a crying out to God for forgiveness. My friends, that's biblical repentance. You believe in God, you respond with a different set of actions, and you say, God, I acknowledge that I've made a mistake. Will you please forgive me? That's biblical repentance. It's just like if you do something wrong and you hurt somebody, you believe in your relationship, you change your ways, then you go, like, could you ever forgive me for what I've done? That's the way it works, and that is true for our relationship with God. See, the Ninevites heard this message of judgment, and instead of rejecting it, everybody like, oh, yeah, you know, that dude just whacked out. Who knows what he's thinking? You know, I don't want to follow that guy. They hear it. They realize that they're wicked. And so what do they do? They believe the message. They believe God, and then they start to change their ways. Now, they proclaimed a fast. So that means they stopped eating, and it goes so far that the king says nobody's allowed to eat not even water, not even the animals. Fasting is a sign that says, God, you are more important than what is necessary for my life. You are the source beyond my source. And we all know we need food to survive. And you're saying, God, I need you more than I need what I need to survive. It's a declaration that God is ultimate. So you have fasting. You have sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was the coarsest of cloth. It was often made from goat's hair. So to take off your clothes and put on sackcloth was radically uncomfortable. Jesus is Biblical repentance isn't pleasant, as Pastor Daniel described today. Turning your life back to Jesus comes with some discomfort. The people of Nineveh demonstrated this by putting on sackcloth and fasting, showing their sincere desire to stop their evil acts and turn to God. Sin can take a hold of you, and it can be difficult to take it out of your heart. The discomfort is worth it, though. You embrace the peace and grace of Jesus. Hey everybody, this is Pastor Daniel, and I want to be honest with you for a moment. Life is messy, and the hard reality is, if it isn't messy for you now, it will be, and it probably has been in the past. 
Did you know that you can still thrive in tough times? It's true, you can, but only through the power of Jesus. That's the purpose behind my book, Honestly. I want you to know how to keep living your best life in Jesus, no matter the circumstances of your life. You can find out more about it and get your own copy at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Next time on Jesus Is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will remind you that God loves everyone. It's true, he really does. Pastor Daniel will also acknowledge that praying for people you don't think deserve mercy can be scary. However, God still calls you to pray for the lost, all of the lost. Take your fears to him and allow your perfect and kind Heavenly Father, well, let him take care of it and of the people you'll be praying for. You've been listening to Jesus Is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series called Rebel. Until then, may God bless.